0: So I've been kind of looking around. I've been gone. This is the longest stretch I've ever been gone from teaching this class, and I've definitely felt it, and it's just um, a treat to be back with you. So it's been fun. I've been just kind of looking at who's here and seeing new faces, and I look forward to meeting those of you that are here for the first time, and also many, many old friends. So it feels like home, and I'm really glad to be around. And a lot of life has been lived in this last... Month, as, as I mentioned, the, the loss of a dear friend. And um, also for me, another friend who has a, just had surgery for a major tumor, and that's been really scary. And then some others that have become grandparents, and um, a couple that are get, about to get married. So I feel like all the different phases of life. And the couple that's about to get married, one of the things they were asking and exploring really. Was as part of really joining together how they could remember what was most important. That inquiry we do hear a lot of what he described as quality of life, how to really keep right front and center remembering what matters. Because both have discovered that life is out of control, that stuff happens. She's a widow. And he's had several divorces and uh, children that are really struggling um, with a lot of… with addiction and dysfunction. And so they, they've experienced personally how it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are, how much meditation you do or how, how virtuous you are, this life is out of control, right? It just stuff happens. And then the question is, given that, how do we respond in a way that we really live and love fully, how do we be here for this life there 's a story that some of you might remember it was in a novel that Tom Wolfe wrote that in the 1950s where there, there were these highly trained pilots in the u s air Force and they were they had this this ordeal where they 'd fly at these altitudes higher than ever had been attempted they 'd go beyond the earth 's denser atmosphere, and to their horror the ordinary laws of aerodynamics didn't work up there. And as Tom Wolfe describes it, this is the right stuff, that book. He says, a plane could skid into a flat spin like a cereal bowl on waxed formica counter and then start tumbling, not spinning and diving, but tumbling end over end. So this is life out of control when we hit some altitudes we're not used to. And he said, at first the pilots would face this challenge and they'd immediately get frantic and they try to stabilize their planes and they'd apply correction after correction. And the more furiously they manipulated the controls, the more furiously they manipulated the controls, the wilder the ride would get and they'd be screaming helplessly to ground control, what do I do next, what do I do next? I hope this sounds familiar, what do I do next to control my life, you know? And they'd be saying that as they were plunging to their deaths. I mean, that was really their final mantra, what do I do next? So this had happened, um, this drama had happened, this very tragic one, happened a number of times and then Chuck Yeager Uh, inadvertently found a way out and what happened was when his plane began tumbling he was thrown violently around the cockpit and he was knocked out and he was unconscious and he plummeted towards earth but he wasn't controlling anything and seven miles later the plane re-entered the planet's denser atmosphere and then the standard navigation strategies could be used but he had discovered the only life-saving response that was possible in this desperate situation don't do anything. You take your hands off the controls." And this is, Tom, Tom Wolf put it this way, he said, you take your hands off the controls, it's the only choice you have. So it countered all training, all conditioning, And I hope you sense this in terms of our our lives and our spiritual lives, that there's all sorts of strategies we can use and we can kind of correct things and fix things and do things. But in the most basic ways, in the ways that really matter the most, in terms of, you know, these bodies getting older, getting sick and dying, other people we love getting old, sick, death in terms of relationships falling apart, it's out of our hands. And so the inquiry is really, is there a way that we can take our hands off the controls that we can know when to stop so furiously trying to manipulate our lives? So there's a line of Rilke that I re-found recently that I've been this has been my mantra, this has been my mantra, and he wrote this, he said, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, let everything happen to you. And so if you just for a moment pause and say, okay, what does it mean to let everything happen to you? What does it mean to really take your hands off the controls and let everything just happen? And part of what we discover because really this is the most fundamental instructions in terms of a liberating practice of meditation stop controlling, just let this life happen first thing that we find out is how absolutely addicted we are to controlling it's like it's in our face that it's really, really hard to let go of control we control through just thinking our way through things and we control by tensing our body and we control by saying, okay, enough already, I'm going to stop meditating, but we control and on the most existential level, we're absolutely rigged to not take our hands off the controls. So I, I just feel like, just in case you feel like, oh my God, I'm such a controlling person, you know, it's, it's we're designed to be controlling. And as, as many of you know, in, it's, this is in the Buddhist teachings and also in Western psychology, when pleasantness arises, we control by trying to hold on to it and when unpleasantness arises, we instinctually control by resisting and tightening or running away. And we have emotional ways of controlling and it's part of surviving. But mostly we do it with our minds. We control by obsessively thinking. We control by chronically trying to figure something out. Have you noticed how many moments of the day there's some process of trying to figure something out going on? I mean, even when there's nothing important to figure out, (laughs) I mean, but it's it's so habitual. We control by blaming, by making other people wrong. We control by making ourselves wrong, I think that's probably the most pervasive way we try to control things, by in some way saying, I'm wrong, I'm bad, and then trying to fix that bad person. So in our personal lives this controlling, this frantic gripping onto the controls is exacerbated if we've had a lot of personal wounding, if there's been unpredictable behaviors, if we felt really unsafe early on. Again, our nervous system has more inclination to try to control. It's not our fault. And it becomes, when it's a lot, we really can see the suffering of it. We can see how our controlling drives other people away. We can see how our controlling is kind of a form of self-torture, we are trying to control ourselves and we are hating ourselves. We can see how our controlling prevents us from having any real spontaneity and sadly any playfulness. It's a sign. You know, there is an um, understanding that, you know, what is it that takes away our wildness you know, we we started as children with some spontaneity and wildness, and what wipes it out is this: there, we get this this kind of implant of something's wrong with me, something's wrong with the world, and then there's just that play it just leaves us. We're too busy trying to control things to make them okay. So I've sometimes called these as false refuges that. All of our particular patterns of trying to control are these false refuges, we are trying to make things okay and we are kind of addicted to the false refuges. We try to control by numbing ourselves with overeating or with using other drugs. We also try to control other people and that's a real big one as we know that you can sense your own, when there is inner agitation and bad feelings inside how quickly it comes to trying to control other people so they cooperate with our agenda or make us feel better or don't make us feel worse. The more we are suffering inside the more there is that tendency to try to control those that are closest to us in our environments. On some level, sometimes we control them by withdrawing from them. But often it is aggressive too. This is, uh, somebody sent me this years ago. A couple was celebrating their golden wedding anniversary. Their domestic tranquility had long been the talk of the town. A local newspaper reporter was inquiring as to the secret of their long and happy marriage. Well, explained the man it dates back to our honeymoon, we visited the Grand Canyon and took a trip down the bottom of the canyon by pack mule. We hadn't gone too far when my wife's mule stumbled. My wife quietly said, that's once. We proceeded a little further when the mule stumbled again. One more time my wife spoke quietly. That's twice. We hadn't gone a half mile when the mule stumbled a third time. My wife promptly removed a revolver from her pocket and shot him. I started to protest over her treatment of the innocent creature when she looked at me and quietly said, That's once. (laughs) It's kind of an awful story, but you get the idea. (laughs) So we try it. We try to control others, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This is a note mailed by a furniture company to a man, Mr. Jones. Dear Mr. Jones, what would your neighbors think if we had to send a truck to your house to repossess the furniture that you still have not finished paying for? They got this reply. Dear sirs, I've discussed the matter with my neighbors to find out what they would think they all think it would be the dirty trick of a mean company that they wouldn't want to patronize again either. Sincerely yours, Mr. Jones. (laughs) (laughs) So I bring this up partly because controlling bleeds over into spiritual life and we often don't know it. That for many people, meditation practice is a way of controlling the mind and the body so we don't feel unpleasantness, oh, I'll go meditate and we pull away from other people and we try to stop ourselves from bad feelings. Spiritual life, sometimes we call it seeking truth but it's really trying to seek an understanding that makes us feel safer, you know, how I think it was Joseph Campbell called religion the opiate of the masses because we're trying to put a frame around things and make things understandable rather than really sensing the great mystery. There's that Zen story of a, of a monk that went to his master and said, what happens after we die? And uh, this Zen master said, um, I don't know. And then the monk was really, really upset and angry. He said, I thought you were Zen Roshi. I thought you were a real master. And he said, I am, but not a dead one, you know. <laughs> So in a way I'm talking about what I sometimes call um, this controlling is I sometimes call like a spacesuit that we put on, all our ways of trying to figure out things and control things and manipulate things to keep us um, safe in a difficult environment. And as I mentioned, the more difficult our environment, usually from early on, in other words, the more trauma or abuse or if we grew up in a kind of war zone or whatever, the more we feel we need to wear a spacesuit, and the spacesuit usually has to do with presenting ourselves to others. You'll notice the spacesuit when you sense how much of your time what you're doing is in some way to get another's approval. How much time is there that computation of how are they thinking of me? That's the spacesuit self, the controlling self. And then what happens, and this is what's sad, is that. We have these strategies and we build our, our spacesuit through these strategies, and we come to think we're the spacesuit. In other words, our identity gets hitched to that spacesuit, and we forget who's peering through. We forget the heart that is feeling what's happening. We forget the awareness that's here. And this is the suffering. The suffering is that we have these strategies to get through the day, so to speak, and we get identified with that doing self, that defending self, that self that wants approval. That becomes our sense of who we are. And we forget this mystery that's here. We forget this presence, this space of presence It's really our nature. So it's a contraction in our sense of being. And as I mentioned, the more that we're caught up in the spacesuit self, the more the suffering's there. And sometimes we hit bottom or sometimes we start a spiritual practice that reveals to us, oh, I'm living in a very small space. Sometimes we start getting that this life is short, as when someone dies or we sense our own mortality. And we wonder that we're moving through our days, kind of skimming the surface, but never really arriving in that here-ness. It's like we're always in this mindset that I first have to get this done and then this done and then this done and then I'll relax. That's the spacesuit self. There's a chronic sense of I can't really, really arrive right here. So I'll give you an example of a woman I worked with some couple of years ago at one of our retreats who was really suffering with with this, in a way, that, as I mentioned, the false refuges. And the way it came up for her was we did a metta meditation, a loving-kindness meditation, and she came up afterwards and asked me if she could have permission to not attend any of the loving-kindness meditations again. (laughs) And I said, okay, so what's up? And she said, well, everyone else is having all these openings and all these things and I am absolutely numb, dead, my heart's not doing anything. And then she, and then I, I asked her to just, you know, listen and take some moments just to feel her heart and she got very, very upset and said, this is the thing, I'm completely numb. And when I'm not numb I'm sometimes anxious and irritated but I'm mostly numb because right then she was being irritated, she was irritated that she was numb but she said those are her two speeds, either numb or irritated slash anxious but there wasn't a sense of of feeling the sorrows or the griefs so or the deep, deep emotions. It was more that she was stuck and cut off. Now that's one of the real signals of false refuge. It's when we've spent a lot of years running away from the deeper feelings, there can be, that dissociation makes it hard to really just feel the human emotions were kind of cut off. And so, I basically encouraged her to, um, to let numbness be part of her meditation. I said, just, you know, we have this idea that some things are worth meditating on and others aren't. And I said, what if when, it, when you're feeling numb just explore and be with that, with real kindness. And she came back and told me that she had done that and she felt like there was a blanket over her heart. And she couldn't let anything in or let anything out. And then she realized that whenever she thought of her mom, that blanket was almost like suffocating. And she had a memory. I had told a story in one of the Dharma talks about a a young girl getting a haircut she hadn't wanted. And it tripped off a memory for her that was the same her mother told her basically that her hair, which was really long and really beautiful and made her feel very special, that it was a nuisance. And the word nuisance had a lot of charge because whenever her mother used the word nuisance in some way doors would get shut and she'd get locked out and um, basically feel that everything about her was a pain in the neck and she wasn't uh, loved. So she had this haircut and it tripped off this thing of what I feel and what I want doesn't matter. I'm not real, I don't matter. And she, over the years, took on these false refuges of working really hard, accomplishing a whole lot, mattering in an external way. She also never let her hair grow long again. She had no sense of passion about anything. In other words, when her hair got cut off, she cut off Her wants and her feelings because it was too dangerous to feel like a nuisance. It was too dangerous to feel she was needy. So she continued at the retreat, just really, sometimes retreats are like this, that the buried layers start really in that silence and in that presence start unfolding themselves. And for her, um, she went into this place feeling like she wasn't living her life, she had wasted her life and she started hating herself for it, for shutting down. And one morning, and she told me this story afterwards, one morning she was totally tied up in knots with that kind of, with that self-hatred and that sense that she had ruined her own life because that's the feeling that comes with it. And she this was down at a retreat center many of us go to at Seven Oaks and she, she, she found a tree that was really big and old and in some way she felt like, okay, I'm going to just let all my sorrows out to this tree. And so she leaned against it and she just started whispering out loud everything she was feeling. And as some of you know, this naming process, when you can start naming what's there it helps to create some more presence and some more healing. There is a saying that, that when a shaman can name a fear, the fear no longer controls that person. So she started whispering her pain to the tree. Just one way to practice, she just whispered it. And she whispered her um, frustration and her fear that she was going to be stuck forever and her self-hatred. And then she started getting in touch with real anger and and this hadn't happened and she she started whispering her and speaking her anger towards her mother and when she did that she got in touch with a grief that she didn't have a mother that was able to really care. And so she told me that she let it all happen, she let the grief happen and the fear and the anger um, and the tree was just there. And then she told me that she started feeling like she was just like that tree, that she started feeling she was rooted in her real self and that she, had, she felt open to the rain and the sun. And, the, In other words, whispering it to the tree, naming it, connected her with a presence that was profoundly healing. The key to it was when she said, Tara, I let it all happen which I hope brings us back to exactly what we're exploring tonight, which is that our real freedom comes when we stop controlling what's going on and we let it all happen. Like just to take a moment just to pause here and just taste it, if you will. You might let your eyes close so you can feel what's happening. As the beginning of letting it all happen is arriving here so you can sense what's happening. And it doesn't matter if it's numbness, it doesn't matter if it's heat, it doesn't matter if it's anxiety, or if there's real quietness. In this pause just sense your intention just to let it all happen. Often what we notice is we begin by arriving and seeing if we just really let be, not control. And then there is a drifting of the mind and the mind starts pursuing thoughts. And then there is a possibility of pausing and again saying, okay, what would happen if I just let it all happen right here? This is the radical presence. Continuing to feel that presence of letting be. You can open your eyes if you'd like. There's a um, Hindu teacher, Swami Sachananda, And he was asked by one student, do I have to become a Hindu to go very deeply in this path? And his response was, well, I'm not a Hindu, I'm an undo. <laughs> and I thought, I think that's really powerful because we have this idea that we are on this spiritual path trying to get somewhere and that we have to do some things to purify and to, you know, get mastery over our minds and become different. And truly the path is one of homecoming, of arriving right here. And if there is anything you could describe as this happening, we are undoing our doings, we are undoing this tendency to keep getting lost, figuring out things. We're undoing the spacesuit self. We're deconditioning all these habits that keep us in the sense of a contracted identity. We're undoing that identity. Not a Hindu, an undo. So if there's a basic message, there it's that um, there's doings, that we naturally are involved with, but the deepest freedom comes when we're truly letting this life happen to us, letting it happen. And yet there's a concern that comes up when I teach about not controlling because it's really the core teaching and so I hear this a lot. And the concern is like this, if I don't control, if I sit here and meditate and just say, okay, I'm going to let everything happen, all that happens is I'm off drifting in a, in a lot of thoughts. And if I go through my life saying I'm going to let everything happen, I just keep pursuing the same old neurotic patterns, you know. You know, I drink too much or I gossip too much or I blame too much. So how am I supposed to really wake up if I'm just letting all the same stuff happen? And I think that's a really good question because there's a wisdom to knowing that we do need to develop certain, what in Buddhism are called skillful means. In other words, when we sit down together here, there's some skillful means that we practice in the meditation instructions. Maybe one of them is that we scan through our body and notice where there's tension and relax it. Maybe one of them is what I sometimes call remindfulness where I, I suggest to you, if you notice your mind's often thoughts, just pause for a moment, okay? We're being intentional here and arrive again, remindfulness. These are skillful means. We're not just saying, okay, whatever happens, happens. You're kind of training the mind to notice when thoughts are going on and coming back. So does that make sense that these are techniques? This is a skillful mean. If you stay with the breath to quiet the mind, that's a skillful means. But here's the real kicker, is that if all you do are skillful means, there's no true realization of who you are. Because there's some sense of a self doing something. There's still a sense of a spacesuit self, a self that's having to navigate or manipulate to have something be okay. The radical freedom comes when you absolutely stop the doings. Only then can you sense that there's not a self in there to be found. But there is a very living, mysterious presence That's what we are. That can't be touched when we're busy controlling. So the wisdom is, use the skillful means with a light touch. Whatever you pick up here or in any spiritual community or psychology, self-improvement, whatever, use them with a light touch, these skillful means. And give yourself the gift of spending some time letting go of the controls completely just letting everything happen to you. For this woman at the retreat, she used the skillful means, she whispered out loud, naming things, but it was in the moment that she said, I just let everything happen, that she discovered the presence that was deeper and beyond any sense of her controlling self. Does that make sense? So we create an environment conducive to presence with the skillful means but then to drop the techniques and just be. There's one of the best stories in the Buddhist mythology of, um, this is after the Buddha died, there was, um, and I'm not sure how long after, probably, you know, a decade or so, there was uh, a council, a gathering of the enlightened Arhats, Arhat is an awakened or enlightened being, they were all gathering to explore the teachings and the future of the teachings and Ananda, who was the Buddha's most loyal attendant, his cousin, great, you know, a beloved being in the Sangha, was not yet enlightened. He was not one of the Arhats. So he couldn't attend the gathering. But he really wanted to. So the night before he he said to himself, I'm staying up all night, no matter what, I'm not going to sleep, I am going to be enlightened by morning, I'm going to go to that meeting. So he used all his stuff, you know, he concentrated his mind and, you know, he pulled everything out of the bag he could to get enlightened. And um, as the story goes, just as right before dawn came, you sense a certain parallel quality in these myths. Right before dawn, he was exhausted. I mean, he was totally exhausted. So he said, he just kind of, I give up. No more, I'm not striving anymore, I give up. And it was in the moments that he lay back to rest on his pillow and totally let go that he became realized, he became enlightened. So what do we make of that? He needed the training. It was important that he had the years of training that he served, that he had developed the capacity to wake up out of thoughts, that he knew how to be in his body. He had trained. And it wasn't until he dropped all striving that he had that radical liberation of truly realizing who he was. It's not easy to stop doing. And it's not about stopping doing. I mean, a lot of people say, well, don't... I have to earn a living. I need to do carpool. I need to make dinner. That's doing. This isn't about not doing. This is about being present in the midst of the doings and not identified with a controlling self. So that you can actually be completely active and engaged, work play, dance, talk, and yet be free from some sense of a self that's trying to manipulate, that's trying to make something happen, that's trying to win, that's afraid of losing. You can see the power of this in in social action. Because very often I'll talk about radical acceptance and non-controlling and people will wonder, well, what about the fact that our earth is being destroyed, aren't we supposed to take action to try to protect and save our earth? Or what about the fact that this war is going on and on and on and we're still paying our tax dollars and we're still doing, as a country, absolutely violating the rights and the well-being of others? What about that? And the answer is not to not act. But the answer is to discover a presence, a presence that's right here, that is not caught up in reactivity that our actions are not coming out of anger or fear because otherwise energetically we just sow the seeds of more in our environment. And we can see it when we are with people that we love that are in trouble. If we are in our controlling self we want to fix them, we want to make them different, we want to have them feel better, and we want to feel that we are coming through and we are making a difference. That doesn't work. That doesn't help. What does help is again arriving in this presence, this awakeness, this here-ness, so that we can respond with compassion, but not from that spacesuit self. So, as I mentioned, it's not easy, especially when there's a sense of something's wrong. We we flip into these phases of reactivity and the more deep there's a sense of our life being threatened or something being deeply threatened, there's actually identifiable stages of how we try to control things. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described it, I think, in probably one of the best ways. Okay, so you're facing your own death, the death of a loved one, and the first thing is, if we possibly can, we deny it. It's going to be okay, we don't face it. That's the first step of the controlling self, the spacesuit self. And then we get angry. In some way we shake our fists at the unfairness and we either blame another or blame ourself. That's the second phase. And then there's the bargaining. The spacesuit self tries to bargain or negotiate, okay, I'm going to take care of myself really well so I can get better. Or in some way we try to negotiate and figure out how we can solve the problem, the next phase of the spacesuit self. And then when we start losing hope we sink into depression, again shutting down our energy. For many people, many people are frozen in one of those stages of reactivity for decades. For this woman at the retreat she had been frozen in the depressive stage for decades. And the beauty of spiritual practice, the invitation of this path is that It's a given that we have controlling tendencies, but we can shorten the time lag so we're not so caught in the reactivity, so we come back home to who's really looking through the mask, to who's really here more quickly. So I'll give you a personal story um, because I feel like I very recently and I'm not not done with it, but I very recently went through one of a real um, strong in-my-face tendency for controlling, and um, it happened, I was up in New England, as many of you know, for the last month, uh, and I was spending the first part of the month teaching, and then the second part of the month I was to be with my family and vacation. And a few days into that second part, the vacationing part, I injured my knees really badly. So I not only couldn't walk real well, I couldn't get even down to a beach. I was hurt badly enough that there was just no activity that I could do. So I skipped the denial stage. I got pretty quickly that my vacation was screwed on one level. <laughs> and went right into the anger phase. And that was my stories, which was self-blame. It's like. The way I injured my knees was, um, and I should know better, is I went on the beach for these kind of fast-walk-run things that, on a slanted beach, and I just don't have the knees that can do that. Um, So I was really blaming myself. So this is the next phase, it's like I was really, really angry at myself. And um, then I went into the bargaining, okay, trying to figure out what's wrong, how I could fix it, hot compresses with castor oil, ice. you know, I just went into that total obsession with how do you make it better. And then I started realizing that this was a full-blown, this was this controlling self, I kind of fixated at those stages of encountering uh, a, a real loss and reactivity, because it was a real loss. I felt like I was really losing some of the things I love the most, which include going to the ocean and riding waves. I'm fanatical about it, so I couldn't do it. So then I became aware that that was the suffering, that the suffering was how I was reacting and trying to control the situation. And then my meditations became very much as I've described with this other woman and what Ralka said, which was, let everything happen to you. So what was happening to me was physical discomfort, feelings of loss, and then really grief. And, of course, it was very blended in with the grief I was feeling at Lucinda's death and feeling the concerns I have about my mom getting older. And so it was all kind of merged together, but this grief about life passing. And when I could just let everything happen, when I could really give space for all of that, there was space. And there was this space and this presence that let me still smell the the salt air and feel the breeze and look at the vistas because we were in a place that had beautiful views and enjoy who I was with. There was as much in moments of a deep sense of pleasure as I could have ever had even if everything was working just fine, which is the whole point of this talk. It doesn't matter what's happening. It's all equal. What matters is the quality of presence. And when we're resisting or controlling what's happening Presence shrinks, we lose contact with presence. When, no matter what's happening, we don't control but rather just be, the presence is there, even if what's happening is our own dying or the death of another. In the moments of truly letting it all happen, we touch a space of awakeness and heart that really is what we most long for. This is a poem by Dorothy Hunt. She says, Peace is this moment without judgment. That is all. This moment in the heart space where everything that is, is welcome. Let me read that again. Peace is this moment without judgment. That is all. This moment in the heart space where everything that is, is welcome. So there are some blessings, uh, what I think of as grace, that becomes available when we begin to recognize Um, or learn, really, letting go of the controls. There's some blessings. And one of them is, and I started at the beginning saying, we kind of get cut off when we're controlling from the playfulness and the spontaneity. I think a lot of us know that's true. Well, when we stop controlling so much, it's all right there again, this sense of wonder You know, you can't have a sense of wonder if you're controlling things, but in the moments you start just letting it all happen, it's wondrous. So this is Rachel Carson, she was that great naturalist. She says, a child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed and even lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout life. So this is one of the gifts of this path, is this having the courage to stop controlling and then, ah, that wonder, that beauty that's here. Another gift is peace. Ajahn Chah said it this way, he said, if you let go a little, you'll find a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you'll find absolute peace and tranquility. So there's an odd thing, that we want to make things safe and better. And so we very busily try to control things so they'll get safe and better. And actually that reinforces the undercurrent that things aren't okay. And the more we control and the more we try to get things done or be who we think we're supposed to be, the more that undercurrent is there. If you seek true peace, stop seeking let go of controlling, really let go, let everything happen to you. So there is this sense of when we let go there is that quality of wonder, there is peace. You can't love if you are controlling. The abstract idea of love can still be there but there is never a visceral experience of love that coincides with the moments of controlling if we're in that spacesuit self trying to make things happen, there's not the receptivity, the listening, the presence that allows for a true perception of here we are together, that oneness, that cherishing. It's an idea, an abstraction. So the great gift of letting it all happen is that we come home to this, this realization, of, of our oneness, of our belonging. And in the deepest way it's the realization of who we are. For myself, one of my inquiries, I mentioned that I, that I have the mantra now of, let everything happen to me, then I follow it with an inquiry which is, who am I when I'm not controlling? And I just want to invite you to check that out as part of your meditation practice to Use the skillful means, help yourself arrive and quiet down and relax, but then put down all controlling and sense, who am I when I'm not controlling? I'd like to close with reading the uh, rilke that I've been referring to, the rest of it, and then doing a very short meditation on not controlling and then we'll be done. So this is the rilke he says God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night these are the words we dimly hear you sent out beyond your recall go to the limits of your longing embody me Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final don't let yourself lose me so with that we come into stillness again don't let yourself lose me really means don't lose yourself in that controlling self, the space self stay connected with the divine that's always here the sacred that's here and is what we really are. Let yourself settle right here now. You might gently feel the movement of the breath as a way of collecting, gathering your attention. Notice if there is any place of letting go in your body and just give yourself that gift, let go a little more right here, right now Let your senses be wide open listening to the sounds listening to and feeling the life that's here in your body Relaxing, listening, feeling the whole moment. Let everything happen to you. a surrendering presence Who are you when there is no controlling? Just let go. Just be that heart space where everything that is, is welcome.